Hello, my lovely listeners. I'm Dr. Mary Barson. And I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. Welcome to this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. Last week we started, um, you know, talking about the psychological drivers of uh, hunger, I guess, and weight gain. And as you know, we do love talking about the two ideas that there's the physiology and the psychology and understanding the drivers of both. So we've pretty much gone through the driver of physiological hunger, which is, um, you know, hormones and the overproduction of insulin in particular. And then last week, we sort of started to go through the idea of the drivers of psychological hunger. And I'm using, you know, my famous air quotes that no one can see, because obviously, if you're psychologically hungry, you're not actually hungry, but you have this need or want or desire to eat something. Yes, that non-hungry eating is an enormous issue that many people need to tackle when they try to take on a new healthy lifestyle. I know last week, Lucy, you mentioned metacognition and how we humans are unique in the animal kingdom in that we have this ability to think about our thoughts. And I know that there's a really helpful psychological theorem that's used in cognitive behavioural therapy that is a really, really useful way to help people understand their non-hungry eating and what they could do about it to get back in control and get healthy and well. And you explain it so wonderfully, so I would like you to explain it now. Thanks, Mayers. Well, Non-hungry eating, I kind of divide it into two broad topics. So one is addiction and the addiction to processed foods is is a, a huge fundamental problem. But the second thing is a term that's often called emotional eating and it's where we will use food to buffer negative or uncomfortable emotions. So that's that concept of you've had a bad day at work, so you come home, sit on the couch and eat chocolate and drink a glass of wine. And it's well established that this is a, you know, a tool and people, you know, it's used in movies where you see the girl breaks up with the boy and then they're sitting on the couch eating um, a tub of ice cream. Or we see it all the time where people have had a disappointment, so somebody tries to cheer them up with, you know, food, chocolate, lollies, whatever. So this kind of paradigm is well entrenched in our society, but not discussed at all and not understood by lots of people as to why there's happening. And they just come and they go, oh, you know, I'm a comfort eater. I eat when I'm sad. I eat when I'm lonely. Or I guess the flip side of that is I'm a celebratory eater. I eat for reward. So unpacking all of those is really crucial to working out why you do non-hungry eating. So the beautiful model, and it's so simple, but yet, again, takes some work to get through, is this idea that we have a thought. Um, So we have a neutral event is the first thing, a neutral event just being a factual event uh, that nobody can tell you, you know, there's no disputing this event. So the event could be all sorts of things. It could be, you know, there's a buffet of food on the table. That's an event. It could be that you had to work two hours overtime. 
They're all considered neutral events, just a fact without any emotion. But then we'll have a thought about that event. And then our thought will create our feelings and our feelings drive our actions. And then our actions drive our results. It's sort of obvious in some ways, but really hard to get your head around in other ways. What do you think, Mares? We've got, go through it again. We have the neutral event and then we have our thoughts about the neutral event which generates our feelings and then we often let our feelings generate the behaviour. So it could be that you could be running late to get home from work and that means you're going to be late to cook the dinner for your kids, which means it's going to be a rush to get them to bed on time. You're feeling all of these horrible feelings of guilt. But the neutral event is the traffic being bad. And then we generate our own thoughts about that and then our feelings. And often we then want to medicate our feelings with food. So it could be traffic equals running late. Everything's going to be hard. The evening's going to be really stressful. I need to make myself feel better with chocolate. Yeah, that's a really common scenario. So yes, the neutral event is there's been a traffic jam. The consequence of that neutral event is that you're going to be late home. Okay, no one will dispute that. That's just a fact. So that's what that neutral event means. People will go, oh, that's not neutral. I'll feel terrible if I'm late home. So no, the neutral bit is just means that it's factual. So then your thoughts about that And we see it. You see people, some people sitting in the car in a traffic jam, they're just cruising, watching, not watching, um, listening to a fabulous podcast, for example. And other people are in the traffic jam and they're tapping their steering wheel and they're trying to get out and you can see them ducking out of the thing. And so they're clearly agitated. So the feelings that these two people have, one feels relaxed and one feels agitated. They have the same event, the same event being the traffic jam. So the thought that the relaxed person will have maybe goes something like this. I'm in a traffic jam. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't make the traffic go any faster. What can I do while I'm here? Why don't I listen to a podcast? Maybe I'll ring my family and let them know. Okay, so they feel quite relaxed. The agitated person is thinking, oh, for God's sake, this is ridiculous. I'm going to be home late. The kids are going to be hungry. We're not going to get anything done. Everyone's going to be late. And the thoughts, so they're all thoughts. A thought is a sentence and a feeling is one word. So that's the other way because sometimes people get their thoughts and their feelings a bit mixed up. So relaxed is the feeling and we talked about his thoughts or her thoughts and then the other person's thoughts lead them to feel agitated. So you can imagine the relaxed person then goes home and just continues about their day. The agitated person goes home and they're in a state of heightened awareness. They're feeling really uncomfortable. Their cortisol's going crazy. And then their thought will be, I need to fix this feeling and I can fix it with a block of chocolate, a tub of ice cream, a glass of wine. Or all three. Yes. And that's the amazing thing about our thoughts is that they are just thoughts. They're not necessarily real. And our brains will lie to us all the time, not out of a sense of malevolence, but just as we throw thoughts up all the time trying to make sense of the world. 
An example I see not that infrequently might be a couple who have a fight, for example, and you can see how differently two different people experience the same situation. So it could be a couple have an argument over anything whose turn it is to take the bin out. Let's say it's a man and a woman. And let's say in this particular circumstance, it's the woman who takes it really hard, has an argument. So the neutral event is that they that the bin needs to go out and two people are disagreeing about whose turn it is. But then one person might say, oh, my God, we're having a fight. This is terrible. We're always fight. Our relationship is doomed. I'm fundamentally unlovable. I'm going to die alone. The thoughts could really, really escalate. Whereas another person might be like, oh, we had a fight. That was a little bit annoying. Oh, well. There could be two people with exactly the same event experiencing it very differently. And our thoughts are not necessarily real. No. And the thing that happens is the more we think something, the quicker it goes. It's like our automatic thought. So If you're constantly thinking that you need to fix this uncomfortable feeling with chocolate, that is like the first thing that comes up within a millisecond of any trauma or distress is I need chocolate because that's what we've always thought. So we often use the phrase our brains are pattern machines. They see it as a situation and they'll repeat it. And we don't realize that we actually have the power to change that pattern. And when you recognize that, that you have the power to change your thoughts, you're like a invincible. So how would you go about helping people unpack this? If people say recognize that they have an unhelpful pattern where they reach to chocolate the second that they experience a moment's distress, what would you tell them? How would you work with them on this? Okay, so, I mean, I do worksheets, which is sometimes people are resistant. And again, that's a whole other story. But really identifying what your self-talk is when you're in moments of distress is really important because it will be the same self-talk that comes over and over. So the first step, and with that thought model, that thought, feeling, action, result, You can identify it in any part. You can work from any section and go either upwards or downwards. So for some people, if let's say their goal is weight loss, so that will be the result. The action they need to get the weight loss is going to be not to eat chocolate when they're distressed. So the feelings they need to experience then in relation to neutral events are feelings of empowerment, feelings of being in control, feeling that all is well, for example. And so then we can go back and go, well, what thoughts would you need to think in order for that to happen? And at first people think it's really contrived, but it's not. All it is is unlearning your old thought patterns because your old thought patterns have a definite pattern, hence the word, and it will always be. An event makes me feel angry or upset. That makes me eat chocolate. That's why I'm overweight or I've got diabetes or what, whatever it is that you're, you're trying to address. So you can actually address it anywhere in that model. 
you can also start with your feelings and go, right, well, every time I have some criticism from my boss at work, I feel disempowered, angry, sad, whatever it is that you feel, and that makes me want to eat popcorn or drink Prosecco or whatever it is that is your go-to. Again, everyone, people have different go-tos. But quite often we don't even realise, we haven't even recognised that that's what's going on. Sometimes we just come home and think, oh, I feel yuck. And in fact, learning to identify your feelings is often the first step because people will use the word yuck or stressed. I just feel stressed. What exact feeling is it? Because then we can work on the thought that is creating that exact feeling. And could you give us some examples of what are the actual feelings? You know, yuck, stress aren't necessarily feelings, but but what are? Great question, Mez. So the feelings that I see that are really uncomfortable, and again, we often want to fix uncomfortable, so they can be feelings of guilt, resentment, jealousy, inadequacy, worthlessness, feelings that we don't talk a lot about, okay? No one ever comes up and says, you know, hey, you're feeling worthless today? You know, we don't ever, they're like things we don't discuss. And so they're almost these sort of hidden feelings that can make us want to get away from them and fix them with food. Yes, yes. I think in our society, we don't necessarily learn how to accept negative feelings. We don't talk about them. We often aren't taught how to process them and often we just want to push them away. Yeah, I think we're in fact encouraged not to have them. People go, oh, don't be jealous. Don't be resentful. It's like, don't be. It's not, I can see why you feel like this. It's okay. Let's process it. Nobody, everyone tells you don't do this. And so you're going, oh my God, okay, I've got to stop doing this. How do I do it? So how do you help people process or accept negative feelings? So I think the first thing to understand is that negative feelings are normal, that we don't live in this wonderful land of Andalusia where everybody is happy 100% of the time, even though that's what people think they should be feeling. It is actually really normal to have the whole range of emotions and there's no need for us to suppress them. So That's often the first thing is just sit with them. Yes, they're uncomfortable, but they also pass. Just like feelings of happiness and contentment will often pass, so will feelings of jealousy and resentment or irritation or any of those will pass and that we often don't need to do anything. But for some people, they are really really uncomfortable, like they felt really distressed by them. So then we can work out, okay, there's a few techniques that we can employ to deal with distressing feelings. And at the time, right in the middle of distress, you're probably unable to change your thoughts. It's very hard to do it in the middle of a distressing event. So I often recommend to people when the moment has passed, actually use that as an opportunity to work out what were you thinking? What were your thoughts? What were the sentences in your head? 
And then the second thing is, and are they actually true? Quite often you'll find they're not. Yep, that's our brains lying to us again. Yeah, yeah. It does require some, you know, for some people, this can be something they just sort of can work through themselves. For a lot of people, they do need to see somebody for it. I mean, it's not something that comes innately to us. As I said, we're not taught this idea as children, certainly not from my generation. We were just told, you know, taught to suppress. Don't cry. Don't cry. Be brave. Don't cry. It's like, hmm. Yeah. So allowing people to experience all the ranges of emotions and you don't actually need to fix them is step one. Very, very good. So people can learn to accept negative emotions. And often when negative emotions are just accepted, I don't know if you've noticed this, Lucy, but I certainly find that if you just accept them and allow them to be there, they do lose a lot of their power. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because if you're trying to repress them, and there's this beautiful analogy, so I have to put one in, that imagine you're in like a swimming pool and you're holding a beach ball. If you're trying to repress it, so pushing it down, it actually takes quite a bit of effort to hold it down under the water. If you just sit it on top of the water and don't fight it, just hold it, it's easy. So that whole idea of repression is actually hard. And then what happens with repression is they pop out when you don't want them to, like a blooming jack-in-the-box. So the idea of just holding it, processing it, and then it'll go is really powerful. I love that one. That's beautiful. So we as weight loss doctors spend quite a lot of time with people talking about their feelings. Yeah. And the feelings are lots of things. The feeling, you know, this is why we talk about the idea that it is 98% mindset, remembering that mindset is not willpower. It's actually unpacking your thoughts so that you can then make sense of them and make choices that, you know, now suit what you want to do to get the results that you want. You know, this is where we are always talking that a two-week meal plan, it doesn't address any of this stuff. And this is really the the foundation, the foundations of it all needs ongoing, ongoing work, your mind. And we do, we love to talk about the idea that your mind is like a garden and it needs to be cultivated. Sometimes it needs a bit of weeding. Sometimes it needs a bit of fertilizer. Sometimes it just needs to be. And that's ongoing for the duration of the garden. It's not a do this for five minutes and all is well again. Lovely. I love that garden analogy. That's what we do, isn't it? Our fundamental principles is we deal with the physiology, which is the food and the fasting, the sleep, the stress, all the behaviours, but also the psychology. Yeah, it has to be both. It really does. So that you can have a beautiful relationship with food. Food doesn't have to be your enemy. Food can be your friend. It's just getting that that relationship right. We don't want food to be like a bad boyfriend that promises the world and delivers nothing. We want a partnership for you, your body and your food. (laughs) On that note, my love, I think we should probably toddle off. And uh, I've got a beautiful dinner to cook tonight. So uh, what are you having just as a bit of a side note? 
Oh, yes, no, I am happy. I'm having an osabuco stew that I have got bubbling away in the slow cooker right now. Beautiful, beautiful. I've got a Thai green curry. Again, I think I might have that almost every time we're on, but blooming hell, I love it. (laughs) All right, darlings, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. So, my lovely listeners, that ends this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. And I'm Dr. Mary Barson. We're from Real Life Medicine. To contact us, please visit rlmedicine.com. And until next time, thanks thanks for for listening. listening.